1: Hello and Owen, welcome to the political party. This episode features Lord Andrew Cooper, founder of Populous, all-round polling guru and expert, pollster to the Remain campaign, David Cameron's, uh, David Cameron's former head of strategy, and he was absolutely brilliant. There are times when it's doing these shows is like having, it's like being on, I was thinking of this, and I'm sure I've used this analogy before, but it's like being on the best university course in the world, because I get to meet leading political figures, and just ask them whatever I want, and, and they get, I mean, Andrew was out of this world good, it's a brilliant insight into polling, into um I suppose why mistakes are made and how they're made um, how hard it is to actually know whether people are going to vote or how they're going to vote it's brilliant and there are so many lessons that come out with it come out of it rather more than anything he's such an impressive individual um, and such a decent and reasonable person it is, oh man it's so hard to because every week it feels like I say this um but it really was an hour, was nowhere near long enough. And uh, particularly with polling, and when you talk to an expert like Andrew, you talking to people who, the whole time is spent listening to the public. So even obsessives like me get so much from the media, but Andrew is... Uh, Deeply involved on a regular basis on a range of issues of talking directly to the public. There are some brilliant stories that come out of it, and also quite apart from anything else, his own politics, his own political journey, and um, huge social changes that are happening here in America that are, that are hugely relevant. It is. It really, I really felt like I thought, you know what? <laughs> I didn't go to private school. But this is the sort of conversation that you money can't buy. That It was almost like having the best teacher in the world and someone who's really done it. it I came away from it so thrilled. Um, which is really important because, uh, obviously, politics at the moment is in, a, is in a particular state. I mean, and I think even if you voted, whichever way you voted, even if you don't vote, um, although I would hope that most people listening listen to this are more inclined to vote than not, um, even if your party is currently in power and even if your side won uh, in the referendum, I think we all accept that politics in general is in a bit of a state, more perhaps to do with the tone of it and um, even, and actually the, the economics of, of the country we're living in and the time in which we're living, um, that things are in a bit of a funk. Um, so it's just so good to talk to someone and so reassuring that he was really, in a very influential role at times in his life, um, and that is hugely reassuring in terms of the way the country is run, because people like him should be influential. It was just great. Uh, I mean, I'm going to stop waffling now and let you enjoy it, but before that, um, uh, I've got some wonderful guests lined up for the weekly shows. Emily Thornberry is my next guest at the live show at the Other Palace. There are two Christmas specials on the 19th and 20th of December at the Leicester Square Theatre. These are always more raucous. Um, I've got well, I can't yet announce it, but I'm very excited about um, r- about who's coming to do it. So um, you can get your tickets now from the Leicester Square Theatre, should you want to buy them in advance. And also, I'm doing two shows in London of the show that I did at the Edinburgh Festival. Brexit Through the Gift Shop, I'm doing that at the South Bank Centre, which is very exciting. On the 1st and the 5th of December, tickets are already going uh, very quickly, but you can get... Um, You can get tickets for those at southbankcentre.co.uk. I will leave you in the wonderful hands of Lord Andrew Cooper. So, welcome to the show, Lord Andrew Cooper of Windrush. Thank you. Um, How should I address you, Lord Cooper or Andrew? Andrew, please. Andrew. (laughs) Is that... um, When you become a, a lord... Is that something that your friends and family struggle with in, in knowing what to call you?
2: Um, I, I, people don't know how to respond to it. Close friends just think it's weird. And it is weird, let's face it. Um, and then when you, when you get asked to do it and you go through all these introductions and they say to you, "Oh, you must change your passport. And I subsequent, subsequently discovered most people ignore that, but I didn't. So I dutifully changed my passport, Brilliant. which is an absolute pain in the neck. Um, so, you know, ultimate first world problem. On drop-down menus, it doesn't give you Lord. So, and, and, and I have to... When you're on an aeroplane, uh, you know, the ticket has to say exactly what's on your passport. So I have to be Lord... Andrew the Lord Cooper of Windrush on my... It's, it's a nightmare I wish I hadn't done it
1: but it must be quite cool when you're renewing bank cards or anything like that and you do get to choose Lord on the yeah. I, I haven't done that I haven't, I haven't because no, no. I do sometimes when I've had to renew you know my documents Lord does appear on some yeah, some of them yeah some of them you think oh it must be so cool to be able yeah. to click that I always uh, I
2: was do it for my wife when she when I'm doing it, and she's not I always make put, put lady for her but <laughs> mister for me
1: <laughs> and if you've got your seals or whatever they're called is that the big yeah. It looks like wax, but I think it's porcelain, isn't it? The big red dish yeah. that comes in a in a red box. In a
2: big red box. Yeah, I I think think it's under the sofa somewhere. I don't know.
1: That's so cool. It's like keeping an Oscar in the toilet, <laughs> isn't it? It's kind of, it's a it's a nice way to deal with it. Um, so you were ennobled by Debbie Cameron, is that right? That's right. And um, who you were very close to. Yeah. Um, it's obviously been talked about quite a lot in the last few weeks. This, this, this mooted return to politics, is, it, is that something he's mentioned to you at all? No,
2: I'd be very surprised.
1: <laughs> I'd be shocked if any Prime Minister wanted to come back yeah. in a lesser role. Yeah. Um, I can understand people going into the House of Lords later on, perhaps, but I was, I was very sceptical of the, of the reports.
2: Yeah, I'm very sceptical of the reports too.
1: Uh, you had a close relationship with him, not just at Downing Street, but throughout the Remain campaign... Um, so let's just go back to how you, you ended up being, being so influential with, with, with David Cameron and with uh, British politics in general. You started out really as a, a member of the SDP.
2: So I started out as a member of the Labour Party. No
1: way! Um, what year?!
2: I I grew up in a Labour supporting household. Uh, We were all very interested in politics. Um, I was very political from a a weirdly young age. Yes, I. It literally didn't occur to me, you know, we were Labour. So I joined joined the Labour Party in 1976 at the age of 13. Um, Was very active in the Labour Party Young Socialists where I lived in East Surrey, which in those days was Geoffrey Howe's constituency, very Tory. Cool, yeah. Got the day off school for for the 1979 election, running a, a Labour committee rooms in a safe Tory ward in East Surrey. Um,
1: so how old would you have been then at the 79 election?
2: I was not quite 16.
1: And they let you have the day off school to do yeah. that? That's really cool. Oh, isn't it cool, yeah. So in 79, which is, you know, by any measure really, uh, such a significant election yep. for Britain, for the Tories, by 1997, or, or by pre-1997 really, you, you'd already started going on a bit of a political journey.
2: Yeah. I then... Um, I joined the SCP at university... First day at university, I went up to the STP student stall and there stood Danny Finkelstein. Cool man, uh, oh, I love him. And we've been incredibly close friends ever since. Um, became very involved in, in the STP uh, through those very challenging years of the Labour Party. Um, my first job out of university was working for the STP in its policy department, and then I worked directly for David Owen uh, for two or three years until the STP completely dissolved. Then went to live in America for a few years, um, watching British politics from afar. Certainly felt in in ninety two, Neil Kinnock versus John Major. I, I had no discomfort in saying I thought John Major was the right answer. Um, and came back and was part of a for, coincidentally actually a part of a formed by sort of Social Democrats for Major stunt which Danny organised. Um, and then went to work with Danny at the Social Market Foundation back in London, and then when he went to work for the Conservative Party, I went with him. Um, he was appointed director of the Research Department um, in, I think, 1995. He inherited a vacancy for the deputy director of research who was in charge of the party's private polling, uh, and he persuaded me to go with him, and that's the first time I got involved in
1: polling. So in terms of... It it 's a fairly incremental journey from the labour party of seventy nine to at the Tory party of of that era but what what are the what are the fence posts what what were the things that started to change your mind
2: um, my um, affinity with with labor in in that period was very much actually about um about the, the then Labour government, which was the you know the post IMF Labour government facing up to reality, James Callahan <coughs> realizing that you couldn't spend your way out of recession, um, and sort of solidarity with that wing of the Labour Party against the um, the left wing of the Labour Party, which subsequently triumphed over it. Um, so the STP seemed like a very small step from that stage. Yeah. Um, became obviously much more uh, you know, developing much stronger views of my own through that period. Um, and Danny and I discussed this a lot at the time, and when we both uh, then ended up in the Tory party, um, it felt as if all of the big political issues um, of the the early mid-80s were ones where actually we and most people in the SDP, and certainly the Owenite bit of the SDP, were basically in agreement with the Conservatives on um, things like cruise missiles and the miners' strike and big totemic political moments, broadly speaking, on privatisation as well. Um, and so, when the STP sort of split, we did we decided not to go with the Liberal Party as it then was because we could have done that at the beginning, and we did have a, a, a sort of loyalty to David Owen. And in the end, I think we looked at it and thought, what in our minds had been us defining this very, very distinctive way to be just on the centre left was if you were anyone else looking at us,
1: obviously we were on the centre right. So then, how much of a challenge was New Labour to your? Or- uh, not so much loyalty, but well, I suppose it is loyalty to the Tories at that point.
2: I think um, I remember very vividly in, in the period up to the ninety-seven election uh, within the Conservative Party, we spent you know vast amounts on research and, and umpteen hours trying to figure out what was the most coherent attack on yes. Tony Blair's Labour Party, and it ended up in the grotesque chaos of New Labour, New Danger. Yeah, um, <laughs> but we went through. Vast different possible arguments, um, and the one thing which literally never occurred to anybody was that Tony Blair might mean it, and that Tony Blair might actually be what he said he was. And I think, so if if I had understood that, I think if we had understood that, we would have thought very very differently about it. And actually, the. During that um, awful period of the 97 election campaign, if you're a Tory, which you know, Major called it on purpose to be incredibly long because he thought people might change their minds. And yeah. it, it was just drawn out hell. Um, but we used to keep a, a sort of private count of how many different strategies the Tories used. And actually, uh, John Major's preferred argument was what we called the Coca-Cola strategy, which was uh, Labour just copying us, and if you want those ideas, you want the real thing, Yeah, which was... Utterly irreconcilable with the argument that New Labour meant new danger. You couldn't say both that they were dangerous and they're copying us. <laughs> yeah. um, but but we did, and, and nobody noticed.
1: Because the big, I suppose, the big uh, decision at the time in terms of attack was: Do you say that this is same old Labour? Yeah. This is just yeah. this is a superficial rebrand of yeah. uh, hard left politics, or is it a New Labour and yeah. a new danger? Yeah.
2: That was a central question. Do we do we try to argue they haven't really changed? All the research said, but they have changed. Mm. So, in the end, we decided there's no point trying to persuade people they haven't because everyone thinks they have. I think, interestingly, we probably didn't think they had. With hindsight, you can clearly see, of course, yes. they had. Um, we, we were too close to it. But, if they changed, there has to be a reason for not voting for them. So, yes, they have changed, but they've changed into something dangerous. Now, nobody at any point could come up with any examples of what that was, or at least in as much as the, the, you know, people kept saying, well, the social chapter's really dangerous. Well, if you're, if you're the Tory party, you think that. If you're of the electorate, you think, no, it's great. Uh, So we never came up with an illustration of why it was dangerous at all.
1: Interestingly, people on the left would probably agree that New Labour was dangerous, (laughs) and certain people running the Labour Party now have been, uh, um, to some extent, vindicated in terms of their position in the party in that regard. New Labour New Danger as a campaign, though, has has become quite fondly remembered. You see... I think someone's done a Jacob Rees-Mogg version after the last referendum and things like that. It's it's entered a kind of kitsch part of political history, that it was quite a cool slogan. And it was... I mean, at the time, it was a tough attack. You know, it it was was sinister.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, And that's what it was trying to do. It was trying to cast Tony Blair and New Labour as sort of sinister people with some undisclosed agenda um they made a they made a political broadcast yes. which which prima when he vetoed but um which explicitly depicted a tony blair like figure selling his soul yes. giving up his soul to the devil it's you know,
1: incredible it looked, yeah. they showed it on a documentary called the yeah. major years on bbc2 a few years ago
2: yeah.
1: and i thought john major came out of that so well for saying that we, yeah. there's no way we could let this be aired yeah but it is—it's a Tony Blair soundalike and a sort of shadow yeah. in the corner, yeah. saying, "Go on, promise yes. you'll promise yes. you'll improve yeah. the country." You
2: don't have to believe it; just say it. <laughs> but I think I think that is revealing because that was an absolutely authentic f- picture of what the Tory Party actually thought about Tony Blair. Yes, um, and the extent to which they didn't understand
1: what he really was, what he really was, and how people felt about him, perhaps
2: yeah. at the time. Yeah, and therefore about the
1: country and how much the country had changed. So you uh, uh, find this passion of polling, which I've always been obsessed by, um, because I just think... What I find really odd about polling in in, in this area that we're in is that so many people are suspicious of it, when it clearly is just... Well, maybe you might disagree, but a really handy way of finding out what people think. And... uh, Obviously, because of new Labour, people think, well, all you do is you commission opinion polls and then you just tell the public what they want to hear. And it's seen as quite a cynical part of politics. I've always thought it's a really helpful thing to actually spend time, listen to people and and just go beyond headline voting intention and find out about social attitudes and and where the country really is. What was it, apart from the, the job that kind of led you to it, what was it about polling specifically that you found so fascinating?
2: I agree exactly with, with what you say. It, it, it's, it's essential for people in politics to spend some time listening to what people in the country of all different types, what matters to them, what they're experiencing, how they're perceiving the whole process of politics. And it does change It changes the way that you do politics when you do that properly. Um, far too many people, um, I think probably particularly in the Tory party, think that it's in some way sort of Unprincipled, you know, you're going to the electorate and ask them to tell you what to think, but you know, but you, nobody does that. Um,
1: so, who are those people in the Tory party? Are they, are they the more traditional voices?
2: Yeah, but, um, I mean, uh, disproportionately probably on the on the, the right wing of the Tory party. But when I worked for after the 1997 election, when we made the first really stumbling attempts to sort of modernize the Tory party, um, when I worked for William Hague. Um, we were attacked for um, focus group fascism and using focus groups and polls to tell us what to think. And um, uh, even after 1997, which was the Tory party's worst defeat since 1832, then we went down to 165 MPs, which is way further than Labour ever fell. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many Tory MPs still had the view that there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the Tory party. Um, and we were very criticised for using polling and focus groups to try to play
1: back to them. The vote of you some My, hard truths, yeah, uh, and and that was that Britain had probably changed in terms of its social attitudes towards things like homosexuality. Uh, lib- socially, Britain had become more socially liberal country. Do you think in that period?
2: Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Um, Britain had become more socially liberal, but also in a way the. Um, some of the, the, the liberalism that Margaret Thatcher, economic liberalism as well, that she had unleashed had, had had lots of consequences in terms of change in the country and the Tory party had, had not kept up to date with its view of the country. There's a great... Uh, Neil Kinnock in, um, in his famous militant conference speech quotes Nye Bevan from In Place of Fear yes. where Bevan talked about the risk of politicians becoming what he called symbol worshippers. So you have this very sort of clear picture of the country you believe in but if you don't sort of concentrate, you can miss the fact that actually the reality's changed. And you hang yes. out this vision that you want to, you want to be true, but actually it's just a symbol. It's not any longer what the country's like. I think that's what had happened to the Tory party.
1: In terms of how polling has changed in your time involved in it, um, obviously there's the internet. So in terms of accessing respondents and things like that uh, has changed. What are the fundamentals of the industry in terms of how it's changed in, in the last 30 or so years?
2: Um, The key is that the the mode of research has has kept changing. So, you know, in the ancient days, face-to-face was the way you did it. Um, That became increasingly expensive and and, and difficult. Back in 1992, when the polls were wrong, uh, the inquiry afterwards concluded that one of the reasons um, the polls had been wrong was because they were using face-to-face and they should have switched to phones. At a point when, you know, 95% of the electorate had a landline and used it. Uh, and so best practice moved on to the phones, when we, when I started doing polling for the Times newspaper back in 2003, we did it all on the phone, uh, you could do it over a weekend, you could do a thousand sample poll, which was the sort of standards, um, the response rate was about one in five, so you would make about 5000 calls to get 1000 <laughs> people to talk to you over a weekend. Um, Gradually, people, you know the, the use of landlines has deteriorated. so, so today probably it's more like um, one in 25 rather than one in five. So doing it on the phone has become increasingly costly and difficult. and also you get these um, uh, participation biases. so different types of people are harder to get hold of and less willing to do the poll, and you end up with inadvertent bias in your numbers. So um, you know b- b- busy middle class professional people are harder to get hold of and more and less willing to do it. Young people are incredibly difficult to get hold of. So the standard spiel, be someone answers the phone, you say, can I speak to the youngest adult in the household over the age of 18? Because they're the hardest people to find. Um, now, these days, you know, hardly anybody uses a landline. Hardly anybody t- answers a phone call when they don't know who it is. Yeah. Um, so that and, and the, the cost effect have driven more and more um, polling online. The problem with polling online is that the underlying premise of polling doesn't hold which is that uh, what you're getting is a random cross-section of the whole country because you can't randomly email people. The only way you can poll people online is if you assemble a panel of people that you can poll. And by definition, they're atypical because they're people who've essentially volunteered to be yes. polled on questions of current affairs in a country where most people are defined by the fact they're not scientists but interested in current <laughs> affairs. And, and there are attitudinal differences between those who are and those who aren't. Uh, and the more often you ask people poll questions, the less typical they become. But that's the nature of the beast online. Is so when
1: you so what does that mean? The, the, the less typical they become, that they get used to being polled, and that changes their yeah. answers. Yeah,
2: um, they become yeah conditioning is is, is the term. One of the, one of the most important um, truths about politics, which you learn very quickly when you do lots of opinion research, um, is is um, brilliantly captured in Tony Blair's book where he says, words to the effect, the biggest mistake that most politicians make is massively to overestimate how interested most people are in politics. Yeah. He said it's a fatal flaw in most politicians, and he said the reason it matters is because it causes politicians to focus on the small picture when they should be focusing on the big picture. Yeah. Um, and so if you take, a, take a, a bunch of people who start from a position of not following politics that much, not knowing much, and you make them do polls uh, over yes. and over again, each time you're adding layers of knowledge they become less and less typical and more conditioned in the answers they give rather than necessarily
1: answering just from, from the gut or the front of mind. That's such an important extrapolation of, of the point that he makes in that book. I remember him saying to me once, and I don't think it was on microphone, that if Question Time was to improve as a TV programme, you would have 40% or 50 or 60% of the audience, people who were sort of generally interested but weren't that tribal, Yeah. Because that's where most people are, yeah. and it would be less of a, it would be less of a, a you know, yeah, but so, bear pit.
2: Yeah, so an awful lot of the stuff which completely obsesses Westminster and people like me and probably you, who probably follow this stuff in detail, uh, you know, the, the sort of hour to hour, day to day pantomime of politics, the vast majority of people in the country aren't following that that at all. Yeah. Um, so you know, quite often we're sent, we're sent out to do focus groups to sort of probe what the voters think of this, that or the other and they don't even know it's happened. Um, and it leads to all kinds of confusion. So I remember in the very early days of the, of the Blair government um, because the Tory, when the Tory party was still very strongly associated with sort of incidents of sleaze. Mm. And when Robin Cook was caught having an affair in the focus groups people t- tied themselves in knots because they thought Robin Cook must be a Tory. <laughs> Because he was having a fight. Wow. But then they think, hang on, but he can't be a Tory because he's in the government. And they sort of, they pause. Um, but the level of knowledge is, is so low. Yeah. Um, and it's really important for the politicians to start there. And the point about Tony Blair's big picture, small picture point, rather than talking as if people are interested in and following the drama about some particular policy row or something that happened in the House of Commons, you have to pull back and think, what you're doing is telling a story about the values of the party that you're in. Yes. And what you're signalling is what kind of people you are, what matters to you, what kind of country you believe in, whose people you're you're fighting for. And that's what matters, not the, the, the minutiae of the point that you're making.
1: So just in terms of, uh, I don't want to dwell too much on 1992, but 92 and 2015 really stand out as, as, uh, as big tests for the polling industry and the, and the reputation of the polling industry. In 1992, the exit poll was wrong. Yeah. And the logic always was that people tell the truth when they've voted and they're coming out, that they've sort of made their peace with it, they're they're less bashful or shy. Um, So why was the exit poll wrong? Were people still, you know, is that logic broken now that people actually will lie after they've voted?
2: No, I I think the problem, what was there was was a sampling problem. The the, the difficulty in exit poll, you know, there are however many thousand polling stations around the country, you can only sample people at some of them, Making sure you pick the right ones that, so that they add up to a cross section of the whole country is really hard, yes, um, what the exit poll now does is it samples at the same polling stations as it did last time, take sampling roughly th- th- through the same, the same process during the day and it effectively measures the swing in that polling station since last time, and then they've got a very clever formula they use to scale up from from this their sample set of polling stations to the whole country to be
1: able to extrapolate that yeah
2: but that's why you know one of the frustrations of, of, of the exit polls here is that in america they collect vast amounts of data so we know a lot about who actually voted why did they vote what mattered most to them who changed their minds in this country we don't collect any of that all we get is people come out of the polling station they replicate exactly what they did they put a cross in it and a piece of paper and put it in a box and out of that we can model how many mps there'll be for each party we don't get vote share. We don't get gender balances. We don't really know exactly who voted or why.
1: And in terms of face-to-face versus phone and an internet or text or whatever else techniques are out there, is there a particular mode which people are more honest with? Because I remember working for the party and people always say, are people more likely to tell the truth to your face than they are over the phone? I mean, I'm not sure if that was just no. folklore.
2: And um, I think I think it slightly depends what questions you're asking, but um, there, are, there are huge differences here. Um, in, in in America, they they established this uh, what they call the Bradley effect, where actually people's perception of the in that case the race of the person interviewing them on the phone alters their answer to questions. Um, the experiments online have shown that that um, what font you use and what colour the background is can make a difference. Wow. We we know that, that, that quite small differences in question wording wording make quite a big difference. Again, going back to the point that most people um, don't have a very high level of interest or awareness. And yes. And so most people don't have well-developed opinions on most things. And slightly weirdly, out of nowhere, somebody phones you up or sends you an email asking you to give an answer to a question. You'll answer the question in the form that it's put to you. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that if it's phrased slightly differently, you wouldn't give a different answer. Or if you have more information and more context, you might change your mind. So most people, their opinions on most things are relatively fluid.
1: Well, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Focus groups give you a, a, a qualitative way instead of a quantitative way of, of, of measuring opinion. In terms of picking a focus group, does it depend on the task at hand, on the brief of, of the client? Or do you have a set way, do you think, right, if it, particularly if it's political, that you would want... A, a group of people, you know. Uh, well, let's. What would be a typical focus group for um, Theresa May to pick if she was if she was t- came to you tomorrow and said, uh, "Andrew, I want you to run a focus group for me on on how the uh, public think I'm handling Brexit." How would you constitute the people in the room?
2: I mean, generally speaking, in a focus group. What you would do is you would want to differentiate between the people who are your core supporters, who will have a different view. You need them to be your advocates and so forth. But yeah. they'll have a, you know, it'll be a different conversation. You'll probably want to screen out the people who are your ab- absolute opponents and will never go to agree with you. Most political focus groups probably consist of the middle group who are your proverbial floating voter. Yeah. Um, and you want to know, you know what, wh- how they're perceiving this, what have they noticed when they hear our argument which they may not have done in whatever news media they use, how do they react to it, what are the obstacles to it, what are the kind of f- flaws in the logic that they think are there, what are the proof points that, that they need that we haven't given them. So a lot of the focus is actually on understanding what's cutting through and on language and how to construct an argument.
1: So in terms of the types of people you would look for, if Theresa May would say, right, I want, a, I want a group of people yeah. that are swing voters, um, would you try and have it gender balanced? Would you try and have it as a, a, a rough cross? Would it proportionally match
2: what you generally do in the UK? I mean, remember that a focus group is basically it's eight or ten people in a yeah. room, um, so. Firstly, you need to do several of them. Otherwise, you've just got <laughs> random eight or ten people. You don't know if it means anything. You would gener- so you generally speaking, do two groups per evening, and in a wave of groups, you might go to three, four, five different places. So you select the places quite carefully. Yeah, different parts of the country, different types of constituency. None eaten and place. Yeah, you, I mean, you, and you do often end up going to the same marginal seats over and you know, over. I mean, Watford, Berry, you know, over yeah, yeah. and over again. Um, we. Generally split them by gender because men and women do tend to notice different things and talk differently about them,
1: so you'd have a male group and a female group, yes uh,
2: and if you do if you sometimes you have to mash them together and and you definitely do lose i think some of the the, the difference in the way that they speak. why we, is that
1: is that because men are more dominant
2: men t- tend to talk more i think <laughs> initially if you look at any opinion poll yeah. Uh, on a topical question, if you look at the people who say don't know, invariably there are far more women than men saying don't know.
1: Roughly what proportion is there? I mean,
2: roughly, probably twice as many usually. So
1: women. 66% would be women of a don't know. Yeah. Wow.
2: Um, which I've always, it's not because women know less, it's because yes. women, I think, in general general terms, much more comfortable just saying, actually, I don't know. Men men tend to, to sort of bluff out of you. <laughs> and I think, and you, and you do see the same thing in focus groups where men will tend to kind of dive in. Wow, isn't that fascinating? Um, but certainly, I mean, you know, we, we very frequently have a, have a two-hour conversation with a bunch of men and a bunch of women, and, and they're very different conversations. And certainly if you want to know what's cutting through and the language to use and what aspects of issues are concerning people, it's better done as a separate conversation.
1: And what are... Are there any characteristics that define those conversations? What are the things that women tend to say or care about versus men?
2: Women it, tend to be, to be more talkative... Men tend to fall. I think particularly if men are conscious of the fact they don't actually... Because it's it's a very weird artificial environment, and quite often at the end of them, people say, that's the longest conversational politics I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, And people... I mean, we always have to emphasise at the beginning, this absolutely is not a general knowledge quiz. This isn't about how much you know. We're just interested in what people notice and what they think, because people suddenly become very self-conscious that they actually don't think they know as much as they thought they did before they came into the room. And I think that tends to manifest itself more in men, who tend tend not to want to say something
1: if they're not, so they're worried about revealing that they don't know much. Wow! And is that that must be quite hard to to manage sometimes? I mean, do, do these things ever get heated?
2: Occasionally, not not usually because because most, if it's a representative group of, of typical voters, most of them are, they're unlikely to feel very strongly about anything. And the way we recruit, I mean, if you take Brexit for example, we in order to understand properly the different sides of the argument you're not going to get that if you put 4 diehard remainers and 4 diehard die-hard in the room you're just going to have, an, have an argument and shouting at each other yeah. so so we we would separate out on big issues like that where there may be deeply held views but on a lot of day-to-day political issues most people just don't feel strongly enough to have an argument with each other
1: in terms of a snapshot of where we are now as a, as a country as a, as a united kingdom what would you say the the social attitudes of Britain are, and have they changed much in the last twenty years?
2: I mean, i I would take, i take comfort in the fact that um, the big picture is that Britain is is becoming a much more progressive, much more socially liberal country over time, um, and it will, and the evidence is it will it will continue to do so. Um, but clearly, at the moment, we are deeply, deeply divided on a set of very broad. Um, Attitudes, values, world views, in a way which is actually quite scary, uh, and, and roughly 50 50 division with a very strong age divide within it, and two views of the world that are completely irreconcilable, and two groups of people who don't understand how each other can view the world in the way that they do.
1: And within that, it, it, let's just say for the last sort of 20 years, has concern about immigration risen significantly since 1998?
2: Y- yes, um, yes, it has, and it. Uh, Ipsos Mori property analysis a few years ago showing actually the concern does broadly speaking track with the increase in numbers. Um, I think a lot of that is to do with the, with the way that it's reported. Yeah, I mean, it it is one of the defining facts of the Brexit referendum that uh, the places that were the strongest support for Brexit are by and large places where there isn't any immigration. They are absolutely defined by their lack of diversity, Yes. whereas the most diverse places were the strongest remain areas. So the concern about immigration in its political impact is by and large something which is observed rather than experienced, and therefore the way that it's reported and the way that over a period of years people have concluded that it somehow accounts for so many problems in our country um, isn't based on actually something which they're experiencing in their own communities.
1: In terms of Britain as an ideological country is there any evidence that people are becoming when you think of the the relative popularity of Labour if not Corbyn um although it's obviously under his leadership is there any evidence that that British people are becoming more left-wing or more socialist
2: no I don't think so um I think what we're seeing is more and more people feeling that the status quo doesn't work for them and without necessarily subjecting to a huge amount of scrutiny the specifics of what are being suggested or alternatives, just a, look, a desire to look at, look for something else, look for something different, a desire really to kind of tip the system on its head because it's not working, to shake up the establishment, the mainstream, make them deal with the problems that don't seem to be, de- be- being dealt with, rather than necessarily a very sort of deep or considered view that the specific way in which
1: they're proposing to do it is the right way. Well, that's a very concerning message for app uh, well the current leadership of the country do you get a sense that they're tuned into that as a message that there is that there is a discord out there that, that will that will that has already created chaos in the political system and could indeed wreak more havoc i
2: i think that most politicians underestimate how deep that goes and how far that runs um and I think unless, and I think this is one of the big messages after the Brexit referendum, unless the mainstream properly listens and engages with the things about people's experiences in their lives that have caused them to lose confidence in the status quo, to lose confidence in the political system, to lose faith that they really have a stake in the success of the country, then the politics continues to go off to the extremes.
1: And how, how much of this is, is post-crash, and how much of that was, was around before...
2: Um, I think it's a process which started before. You can actually uh, you can see it in the data. Actually, it started. I think um, hopes in Tony Blair, well, I, I'm huge, hugely <laughs> positive, by and large, Tony Blair, by the way. But hopes in Tony Blair were ludicrously unmeetably high. Yeah. Uh, and I think the moment people sort of started to, to, to look at his government and think, well, why hasn't it fixed everything? Uh, and the sense, you know, this huge majority could do anything, and things weren't from different perspectives, different views people had about what those problems were, but that you saw a sort of decay starting. I think the MP expense scandal was a massive, massive issue. It was a kind of gotcha moment for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, They were shocked, but they weren't surprised. You know, sort of, we always suspected that secretly that's what they were up to. Yeah, but they had it confirmed. Yeah. Um, But, you know, but uh, uh, which enabled people to just lump all the politicians together, they're all basically the same, they're all in it for themselves. They they're on the other side of this gulf between them and us. Um, they've all got their snacks in the trough. And then and then the banking crash, where the same sort of people, you know the elite in whose interest everything seemed to work, brought this completely incomprehensible mess down on our heads. And then we're never held to account for it. Um, and carried on behaving basically in the same way almost straight away and carried on with the, the access to power that they had. And while everybody else in the country had to had to pay the price for that in the in decade of austerity, I think you can understand why people feel, and then, you know, unknowingly what we did with hindsight in the referendum campaign in, uh, in the, on the Remain side was produce a parade of those same people mm. saying, stay in the EU, it's good. And I think people will say, well, we you know it's good for you. We know it works for you. It doesn't work for us. That's the point. And you're not listening.
1: In terms of putting this in context, because depending on who you talk to in politics, some people say, well, politicians have always been at the bottom of the League of Trust. Uh, There have always been events that have, whether recessions or poll tax or whatever they are, the minor strike, these big moments of political unrest that have destroyed trust. Is this a new type of relationship there? Are we seeing something more profound in this era?
2: I, th- I think so. Um, I think the I think in the, the, the there are occasions in the past things have happened and people have lost trust in, in some politicians um, as a category people didn't have as little faith as they have now, little trust as they have now in, in politicians in general, parties in general in government in general as they do uh, as they do now. I think in the past people tended to sort of think they were Bad apples rather than thinking that the whole system is rotten and that's partly because of things which have happened in politics I think it's partly just because the way that the world has changed and the way that, that everybody we're now you know bombarded with information about everything and the way we feel about every transaction we undertake has changed we feel more empowered and we're more critical um, people have become more and more cynical so you know nobody believes anything anyone says it's just show sh- 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 me um, and you get this kind of reinforcing cynicism about everything, but you just you know, need a, a few big proof points to make people p- feel that it's not working. Now, I, think, I think history will pull back and say this is, this is all a massive reaction to globalisation yeah. um, and the massive economic and then a political dislocation stemming from the economic dislocation and how mainstream politics did or didn't handle it.
1: But we're right in the middle of it. So where's the, is there any hope that, that, that this relationship can change, that there are politicians or or answers to, to, to realign or, or reconnect the political class i mean to some extent, Jeremy Corbyn provides a hope in that regard doesn 't he that he has managed to energize people who are previously cynical about politics or traditionally cynical
2: uh yes he does he does seem to have done that he has an ability to to connect with people i think um, I think that more to do with um it's more to do with with the fact that he seems to be an authentic person. Um, it's more to do with the fact that he comes across as somebody who has consistent principles. Someone said it in a focus group recently, think about Corbyn, he's never changed his mind on anything for 30 years. Yeah. But they meant it as a good thing. <laughs> um, and, and almost, this is an exaggeration, but it's almost that people, people don't mind that much what it is he believes. Um, It's that he believes something. He's not one of those politicians, which is the caricature people have, unfairly, by the way, but Mm. have of most politicians, which is they don't really believe in anything. They don't mean what they say. They don't try to do what they say. They're telling you what you want to hear. They're reading out some speech written by somebody. They're giving you a soundbite that someone's written for them. They don't mean it. So the only politicians who anybody even slightly is drawn to um, are the politicians who come across as authentic, unspun, you know, there's an element there of kind of gaff prone, but un- unscripted. They mean what they say, and that's you know that's the appeal of of Boris Johnson. That's yeah. the appeal of, of Jeremy Corbyn. It was the appeal of Ken Livingstone in his pomp. Yes. Anne Whittlecombe, Mo molam Ken Clark. The only politicians people warm to are people who come across in that way, and 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 those characteristics actually matter more in their ability to be heard and and, and sort of liked what they're actually saying.
1: So, if you are a career politician, or a, you know, an Oxbridge um, conveyor belt, well, I'm trying to think of the other insults that people hurl around about some very talented individuals. But if you are of that kind of generation or of that of that style, what is the lesson to take from that then? To actually be less uptight, be more yourself.
2: Yes, I think um, I think people in politics got, have got, mass, got massively sort of over obsessed with. Sound bites and and, and trying to make everybody use the same language. You know, any ordinary person when they they hear a obviously prepackaged soundbite coming out, they switched off before it's even halfway out of your mouth. You know, you you have a clear argument, but everybody should express it in their different ways that's authentic to them, in in their own language. Um, I think also it drives people nuts that politicians don't give a straight answer to a straight question. They don't say I don't know when I don't know. They don't say actually the other lot have got quite a good point there. Um, you know the idea that this this sort of absurd tribalism that only we are right about anything
1: and they are wrong about everything that
2: just drives people nuts,
1: so I suppose in a way people just have to be a bit more mature yes that 's what it would require it 's not about necessarily big policy ideas these are these are stylistic yeah. cosmetic they they're come if, from a pure truth yeah. but they.
2: but i think if people if politicians behave in the way that almost every other institution in this country now behaves, if you think about how parliament is and the yeah. way that they shout at each other I like that, um <laughs> But it's incredibly unhealthy. Um, I, w- I was at school with Keir Starmer. Uh, no way! He's, a, he's an old friend of mine. And he, he, he said to me, we had lunch a little while ago, and he said um, he's ready to do his first speech at the dispatch box. You know, he's, he's, he's joined the Shadow Cabinet. And a massive moment in someone's career. hasn't long been an MP. And so you know, he's, he's, he's sitting there, a bit nervous, mm. draws breath, stands up, puts his papers down on the box, looks up, and he said, and there are 200 people shrieking at you. <laughs> now there is no other institution in Britain where that would be acceptable any longer. and it's no, it's no surprise now, you know, that we're now seeing all kinds of issues coming to the surface about the way that people treat each other in, yeah. in politics but it, you know now I personally think the, some of the process and the pageantry and the tradition is part of the problem because it enables it to be opaque to people mm. and people hide behind the bluster um, but it's unsurprising that it doesn't lead to
1: edifying sensible serious discussion that's a fair point but I d- there is something about the the cauldron of it that yeah. that is that is enticing, particularly when you compare it to other parliaments. There is, it, it's a it's a ferocious arena that probably does improve politicians to an extent.
2: It 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 means that in order to succeed, you have to have that skill set. You have to you have to be quick witted. Um, you know, you you have to be very clear about what you're going to say because, of course, you can't hear anything in there. No. Um, I'm not sure that it adds much, though, positively to, to the way that the country is run. And I think it's part of the reason why politics doesn't work.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
1: in terms of 2015 then because we talked about 1992 2015 to many people was a huge shock um particularly to the lib dems who didn't see that that route through the southwest being uh, carved underneath their feet um and the book i think it's tim ross's book about 2015 is a brilliant why the tories won or something like that um how the tories won it i think it's called um was 2015 a shock to you?
2: Yeah. Um, I think it was a shock to everybody. Um, some people after the fact said that they knew, but I'm not sure that any, anybody did. Um, 2015, uh, I mean, the, the, the error of the polls reveals the other big problem that the polls have, which, and I, I'm not quite sure how, how this is solved, which is even assuming that you can, by whatever mode, phone or online or whatever, you can get a sample of people that's genuinely representative of the whole country, and that's really hard you're left with then with the problem. How do we know who's going to vote? Yes. Um, people are massively likely to overstate their own likelihood to vote. There's a social norm effect. You're meant to vote, so people say, oh, I always vote. But you don't. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we know that probably in our sample of 2,000 people, about 70%, give or take, are going to vote. Which 70% vote makes I all the difference say, in the world, it, it particularly in, in times where the difference between the, the two main parties is within the margin of error anyway. Um, And people overstate their own likelihood. So in the old days, uh, polls just always used to just ask, on a scale of 0 to 10, how likely are you to vote? And then they would weight the answer to the voting question in direct proportion. Um, But post-election polls and and the studies between elections where you repoll the same people um, show that that was incredibly inaccurate. People who say that they're 10 out of 10 likely to vote tomorrow, a lot of them don't. And quite a lot of people who say, I'm only three or four out of ten likely to vote do. Um, So then most polls have switched to what they call propensity models, which is where you you discount how likely people say they are to vote, and you look at recent previous elections, and you can say, we know that people of certain particular demographic groups have a greater or lesser likelihood to vote. So the more demographic information we know about you, the more confidently we can infer how likely you are actually to vote without even asking you. Um, and and so, is that more accurate? Well, it, the, pro- the problem with it, it, it looked accurate for a while, but the problem <laughs> is it varies from election to election. So in... in um, I think I'm getting this right around. I think in 2015, that was more accurate. But in 2016, a year later, that was the biggest source of error in the referendum polls. Um, the people who in 2015 were the most right were the most wrong in 2017. So you're basically left guessing who's going to vote, and... Um, I mean, my, my company, we've stopped doing voting intention polling partly for this for this reason. But in 2017, I think there were 16 uh, different polling organizations produced um, a, a final vote predict, predict, prediction. Um, I think the evidence is they were looking at roughly the same raw data. And the spread of numbers they published was between a 16% Tory lead and 3% Labour lead. Wow. And all of that spread is their different estimation of who's actually going to vote. Um, so, you know, in all the debate now about um, people's votes and if there are a second referendum, the truth is a huge amount will depend upon who actually votes this time. In 2016, there were about 2 million people who came out and voted who hadn't voted in the general election a year earlier, and many of those people had never voted before, but Brexit was an issue which animated them. Will they come out again? We don't know. We know that a lot of them didn't come out again a year after that in the 2017 general election. Um, 2016, we'd expected a lot of young people who tend usually not to vote to vote, but actually we overestimated that, and a lot of them went onto the electoral register. We know that, but and then didn't end up voting. Will
1: they vote next time if there was a people's vote? We don't know. So, in terms of demographically, that two million people. Young people are, are less likely to vote, so, so they're in there. Are, are we talking also about white working class people? What's the, yeah. what's the rest of the constitution of the, that to me? The,
2: really? the, they were the two broad groups. And in, in the 2016 referendum, in, in the end, there were far more, crudely speaking, white working class people who don't usually vote, who voted, yeah. than there were 18 to 24s. We know that, and one of the, one of the causes for poll error in the, in the referendum was we know, because the uh, data was published that of the people who, who signed on to the electoral register in order to be able to vote, those people were very disproportionately younger. There were more than twice the proportion of 18 to 24s in that in that group than there were in the population, which is why the, the Remain campaign was confident a lot of those people were going to come out. Now, the evidence is actually a lot of them, having gone on the electoral register to be able to vote, then didn't. Um, whereas huge numbers of people, um, of, you know, older white working class people,
1: who don't usually vote, did come out and vote. So you were doing the polling for the Remain campaign, yeah. which must have been a an incredible experience. To, I mean, I, I'm not sure that quite covers um, what what you went through. I mean, it, in terms of seeing the results come in on the night, seeing Sunderland and Newcastle early, and, and, and extrapolating from that, did you know you'd lost at that point?
2: Yeah, yeah. The the, um, <sighs> the interestingly on this particular issue on, on, on Brexit, um, the. Demographics are an incredibly strong predictor. Um, so you can predict whether someone is a remain or leave voted on the basis of just four or five bits of demographic information. And because we know the underlying demographics of each uh, local authority area where they were being counted, once we knew where the baseline was, you could predict incredibly accurately. In fact, we, and we built a model that after, if you put in the results from the first few and it predicts the end result, and it didn't change after the first three or four. Um, so, so we, we knew...
1: And in terms of how polling influences a campaign, you're obviously taking the the opinion of the nation. It's then up to the campaign to react to that information. Um, I don't know if you've read some Shipman's book, All Out War.
2: I started it, and I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to. I can imagine it's very hard. The, the, and it still is... The, um... For a lot of people who were closely involved in the Remain campaign, it's still an incredibly emotional sort of raw thing. It's very weird. I know people who are close friends who haven't fallen out with each other but just can't
1: talk to each other anymore because it's still such an emotional thing. I found it hard just as a voter, let alone someone who'd been close to the campaign. So I can't imagine how it would feel to, to, to read it from your perspective. But um, in the book they talk about polling and, and the, the margin error and things like that. And there's almost not a suggestion that it was the cause of the defeat, but that had um, the polling been different or, or done in a different way, perhaps the campaign would have been run differently? I mean, do you think it would have changed fundamentally the stronger in campaign at all?
2: Um, I don't I don't think so. I mean, it goes to how polling is used within campaigns, and, uh, and because it's the currency people are sort of used to in the media, people tend to focus on the voting intention bit, and that's not at all the most uh, important bit of it. Actually, the the... the Remain campaign polling was was wrong. Um, It it wasn't far off, but it was off. Um, And the final, throughout the last two or three, two and a half weeks, we had it basically within a margin of error of 50-50, but with Remain slightly ahead. um, I think there there was definitely a conceptual mistake made, which I don't think um, made a difference in terms of what the campaign did. But we had assumed um, that people who were undecided right to the end, if they voted... Break in favour of Remain um, as the least risky option because that's what's happened in literally every referendum there's ever been anywhere on anything, yeah. including um, the recent experience in Scotland. And actually, that that didn't happen. So we sort of assumed if it's fifty fifty going in, we'll just about be okay. Um, but we you know we knew it was very close. Um, I mean the key. Bit of the what the research is doing in the campaign is is really triage um, from the the outset. And we first, you know, with the the bare bones of that campaign were done. um, The big segmentation exercise, where we can deconstruct the election, was done um, in March the previous year. Um, But what you're doing is is asking a lot of really detailed questions, not just about the specific issue of the EU and, and the UK's membership of it, but much broader questions about how people feel about globalization, internationalism, immigration, ra- range of values questions. Yes. And then you split the the electorate into segments that are alike attitudinally, regardless of their demographics or region or anything else. You end up with a series of discrete groups that are alike and different from each other. Um, and then you, you triage, so you're saying, well, actually, there's two groups here who basically they've already made up their minds. There's nothing we can say to those people to get yeah. the vote to remain. There's two groups here, they're going to vote to remain whatever. They're not going to change their mind. We need to make sure that they're motivated. We need to get out the vote operation. They need to be our advocates. And then there's a group in in the middle, two groups in the middle. Um, They're the people who are genuinely in play here. They're the people we we focus on. And from that point on, really, all of the research, that because there's tons of published research telling you what the horse race is nationally, what the campaign's research is doing is focusing on the people who are are the focus of its campaigning um, to try to understand how they're feeling about the, this, what they're hearing, what's swaying them, what their reservations are, what are the arguments which we could make to them, which they would find persuasive. Um, and, and you know those are the groups am- among whom we lost. They started off, you know, if you really push them, if you said the referendum's right now and you can't abstain what you're going to do, they were leaning narrowly, remain. Uh, and at the end, they, the, the majority of those people went to leave. Um, and my view is it's fundamentally about that we lost the economic argument. Mm. Um, lots of people focus on immigration. And, and throughout that campaign, and particularly f- for the last few weeks, almost every day, um, a debate was had about should we directly engage the issue of immigration, uh, to which my view was yes, if we got something to say. Um, but the fact was that David Cameron had said, um, I won't take no, no for an answer on free movement. And then he took no for an answer on free movement. Mm. and. The fact was voting to remain in the EU meant the continuation of free movement. Now, personally, I'm quite happy to make an argument in favour of free movement, but that was unlikely to win. And for people who were concerned about immigration, if the choice is leave and have total control, or remain and have no control and have free movement, that wasn't a great position. Mm -hmm. What the research said, and I and I, I see no reason to think this wasn't true in principle, was there were enough people who thought that immigration was a really important issue and were were for that reason drawn to the idea of leaving, but who were also persuadable that the economics, both the benefits of staying in and the risks of leaving, trumped that immigration concern. And without an economic argument to deploy, an immigration argument to deploy, sorry, um, what we we had to build a campaign on economics and we had to say, um, we are better off in the EU and we'd be worse off leaving. Um, And it was a very transactional message. But the voters we were aiming at were very transactional in their feelings. Mm. Um, We call them the hearts for your heads because about 80% of them said, my heart says we should leave the European Union. My head says I'm really worried about the risks of leaving the European Union. Um, But I think the way in which the campaign tried to paint the picture of what those risks were, um, some of it, I think, was, was Disproportionate and it it looked hysterical, but in the totality, actually, the way in which we were doing it was principally by reference to esteemed expert international bodies and acronyms you would never heard of, or a parade of, as I was referring to earlier, business people and other people who who the rest of the world thinks already knew, thought the EU worked. Actually, we were in a sense making the other side's argument for them. Um, We always knew we knew right from the beginning um, that. Um, if if in people's minds the question was how do we get more control as a country, we're going to lose. Um, We tried to make an argument that we're all better off. Though the EU is a flawed institution and though we have frustrations about immigration, the the solution to those isn't isn't to bust the economy. Um, And we just failed to persuade people of that argument.
1: One of the things that comes out of the book is this this view, uh, and I think it's one that Dominic Cummings puts forward, The idea that actually immigration was an economic argument, that it wasn't necessarily concern about different people coming here. It was about job security, and actually they'd weaponised immigration in an economic way.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's completely true. One of the things which we tracked um, during the referendum campaign was a very simple question which said, um, if the UK ends up leaving the EU, do you think the following things will go up or down? Um, And they were things like immigration, uh, unemployment... um, yeah. NHS waiting lists and so on and what, what it told you was that by a massive margin people thought if we leave the EU um, immigration from the EU will go down so will immigration from, from other countries um, but unemployment will go down because they won't be coming here taking our mm. jobs the benefit bill will come down because they won't be here coming here taking our benefits which weirdly people think they do as well as taking our <laughs> jobs um, NHS waiting lists will go down council house waiting lists will go down class sizes will go down less trade with the EU but more trade with the rest of the world and it, it so it was immigration was the sort of magic bullet solution to so many problems people saw in the country. As I say, principally, not exclusively, but principally people in places where there wasn't any immigration observing its effect on our country and concluding an awful lot of the problems we have with public services and with the things that matter in our lives. And the pressures on our country, which is so overstretched, seemed to originate here. Um, so it was. I, I think the, the, the Leave campaign was incredibly smart, I think it was deeply cynical and deeply dishonest, um, but incredibly disciplined. I think they deployed immigration in a profoundly disreputable but very effective way. I think the um, the way that they played Turkey as an issue was profoundly wrong and dishonest and actually very unpleasant. Michael
1: um, Gover said he, I'm not sure he's used the word uh, apologise, but he said he might have done things differently on Turkey.
2: Yeah. Um, and the thing, you know, Michael Gove knew perfectly well why David Cameron would be wrong to say we'll veto Turkish entry. Boris Johnson, who was one of the most prominent advocates of Turkish accession, that he's himself got Turkish <laughs> heritage. <laughs> heritage. Um, but you know, then the, the linkage with that by the geography that Turkey is, you know, Turkey is near Iraq, and basically it's a gateway for. You know, it was, it was very, very. Uh, It was outrageous scaremongering. I think the other very clever linkage they made was with the NHS. Mm. As I say, what our our polling told us people make that direct link. People think that if we leave the EU and therefore control our borders, they'll put less pressure on the NHS and waiting lists will go down. Um, We tried to respond to that by pointing out how much the NHS depends upon um, people who work in it, who who, who come from other countries. but that was very powerful, and so, th- so the £350 million a week was an incredibly um, effective way to, to you know, a, a, a benefit that linked, that felt credible to people. It was, you know, We know it was a lie. We know it was it was a very cynical thing to, to say. You know, they stuck to it doggedly, which is admirable discipline in the campaign. Um, but it's, you know, it's very clear now that we're not going to see £350 million a week with the NHS, and it just wasn't true, and they knew it wasn't true
1: you'd been director of strategy to David Cameron prior to the referendum campaign, and then you end up uh, being very close to him during the referendum campaign in in a polling capacity. How did it affect him having people like Boris and Michael Gove saying those sort of things and and declaring war on him when he was clearly reluctant to declare war on them?
2: Um, I I think the thing about David Cameron is that he... I think what everyone thinks of his politics, he's temperamentally very well suited to be a political leader Um, and I was always amazed. I worked for him for over two and a half years in Downing Street and I worked with him before and since and and he's amazingly calm and he's very good at not getting emotional about things Um, I think it's clear from already from the sort of contemporary histories that um, he was very upset at Michael Gove's position I think because he felt that their relationship was of a different nature, and I think he felt that, that there were at least implicit understandings between them. That if Michael took that position, he wouldn't take that position very vi- um, visibly or vigorously. Yeah. And I think Michael Gove ended up saying things which, in the cold light of the day, he wouldn't have said or thought. Um, I think everybody always make, makes uh, discounts for, for Boris. I, I personally don't, but a lot of, but a lot of people do. Um, and that was, just, that was just Boris. I mean, we knew that that was, it was very clear. Indeed, it was clear in the public polling. Um, if you look back at the polls um, back in the autumn of the previous year, um, polls clearly showed that if, um, if David Cameron comes back from negotiations and he and Boris Johnson agree this is a good deal and we should vote to remain, the massive bulk of Tory voters would, were going to take the party line on that and back them. And in the scenario that Cameron comes back and says, this is a good deal, back it, and Boris Johnson says, no, we should leave, we, we lost all all bounce and all party advantage. So we
1: knew that it was a, it was a big discriminator and David knew that, but he was
2: very phlegmatic about
1: it. How did he take bad news, and compared to some of the other politicians you've worked for, Major and Owen and people like that, when you're delivering the the words of the public to them you know how do, how do some of the people that you've worked for differ in in their capacity to take I suppose in a way quite insulting messages from focus groups
2: yeah I think I've probably been quite lucky I think everyone I've had the task of reporting those things to have, have taken it very well I mean David Cameron had a kind of masochistic <laughs> desire to be told the full detail of what people think and sometimes then he would get he would get quite sort of self righteous and say but that's not right but I'm not. <laughs> You know, the people th- think he's completely out of touch, and the truth is, he wasn't. You know, he, he lives a different life because he's a politician and so on. But in terms of what people meant by that, which is, he doesn't understand the kind of challenges we face, and he doesn't understand the things we care about. Well, actually, he, you know, I think as much as a politician can, he did. Um, but no, he. I mean, he he insisted upon. Partly, I think that one, one reads. I don't know. One reads that Gordon Brown. Pulses he used to have to sort of edit because he would throw things at them um, <laughs> um and 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 david he wanted you know he wanted to know and one of my jobs when I worked for him was he wanted sort of an unvarnished view of
1: what people are saying and thinking about him and would you would you use the words that were used in focus groups I mean yeah because these these things often find their way into the newspapers yeah. and they're they're very insulting,
2: yeah,
1: whether they're likened to animals or yeah. I remember one exchange seen Hagen and Blair during that golden era of Prime Minister's Question Time where they'd got hold of the same polling report and um Hay gets so he's saying, 29% of people wouldn't buy a used car of him. 49% of him think he's a liar. And he's just throwing these... Yeah. I remember, but, so I noticed he hasn't used the words uh, used about him. 48% of people think he's a drip. <laughs> was just these, it was a, such a funny exchange about the words people associate yeah. with him. I mean, I, I've always,
2: you know, they're, they're the real words, and often people People come up with the most vivid ways of making a point. I've always felt actually getting politicians to engage with something has helped usually by playing back exactly the language people use. Um, I remember, I mean, back in the Hague era, um, when we first were trying to put forward a modernising argument, and I remember doing it to him in um, 1998 saying, basically the, the focus group view can be summed up by, they just say, they've got to get rid of Hague. Um <laughs> You know, they want. I mean, people. You know, people thought William was deeply weird because they remembered that he'd been a Tory when he was sixteen, yes. and like he almost sort of grown in a test tube in the basement of Tory <laughs> Central Office and unleashed on Britain. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, the language people use is is a, is a very effective way to, to bring it to life, and most politicians um, respond well to that, in my experience.
1: Well, that's good because some. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Gordon there. I mean, certainly some politicians that I'd worked for or, or been around over the years. I was strangely allergic to public opinion, I thought, and almost didn't want to listen to what, I mean, not just in terms of not wanting to listen, but were very reluctant to talk to the public face to face. And I can think of two or three MPs in marginal seats that were lost in 2010 that would never go out and canvass opinion in their, in their constituency because they were so petrified of the public. It's just a straight... It, to me, a politician was always someone who was comfortable with the public, but actually, my, my experience started to teach me something yeah. very different.
2: Yeah, no, not all of them are. Um, and they have different reactions. I remember also once in a, in a Hague cabinet meeting presenting some polling and, and John Redwood saying... Um, he was then... I don't Shadow, whatever he was. He said, um... He, well, I do my own polling every Friday on the doorsteps <laughs> of my constituency and let me tell you, that isn't what people think. He said, oh, my God. <laughs> um... But no, in my experience, most politicians respond um, quite well to it. I think um, when you get them to go to folk groups, which I always try to encourage them to, um, they were always utterly shocked and appalled by how little people knew. I remember, um, in, when, after Boris Johnson resigned um, from as MP for Henley to go and run for Mayor of London, and there was a by-election and we did some focus groups. And I remember Chris Grayling, who was Shadow Home Secretary, I think, but he wanted to come and watch them and he insisted that he'd be kind of sneaked in through the back door because people would, would identify <laughs> him and, and he and and the groups were on a monday night and he, as it happened he spent the sort of weekend on the weekend programs making some spirit announcement or other so you know he, he thought you know, well they're all going to be and he was absolutely heartbroken <laughs> because you know we all start by you know, what have you noticed in the news and he you know he's expecting them all to say, oh that chris grayling was saying and then, you, but, you know, but the truth is they never heard of Chris Gray. They couldn't pick him out of a police lineup. They've got no idea he was on telly or what was like. I mean, he was heartbroken. Um, but that reality check is really important for politicians, I think. i went back to the Blair point about the big picture.
1: It's so important um, in terms of polling now, then, and, and its role and, and, and what populace provides, because there are so many Mori Ipsos Mori as it now is. You know, people fondly remember Gallup, and you know these, these parts, particularly of election night TV yeah. and/or uh, general election campaigns, where polling comes under the microscope again, and the comres and all these other. Um, Companies are you all distinct in the way that you gather data and and use it? And what does I suppose it's asking you to pitch your own company? But what does Populous do that other polling companies don't?
2: Um, well, so we 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 no longer do traditional voting intention polling because because my view is that the reasons why it's been wrong are not really fixable. Um, so we tend to use more sophisticated and bigger data sets. Um, uh, demographic data other data um, and analytics to try to make sense of what people are doing and to some extent to enable you then to kind of predict where they're going rather than I think the, the truth is that the traditional voting intention question is just a really crap product <laughs> and actually um, the way that people live their lives these days getting hold of a representative sample of people who are willing to give you several minutes of their time to answer your questions is really difficult and as people have become less and less um, adherent to particular parties and more and more people sort of in the churn of feeling cynical and not sure and looking for something else, people's answer to the question, how, how would you vote if there was an election tomorrow, isn't really worth anything. Um, so to really understand it, you need to do much more detailed kind of analysis. Um, I think, you know, th- th- there are lots of, pr- of polling companies out there and we all use the same basic modes to collect the data. You know, there are only so many ways you can interview 1,000 people, 2,000 people, whatever. Um, depending on the clients we have, you know, you may be asking different types of people, you're asking them different kinds of questions. And I think all, all the companies now are using more sophisticated techniques to try to make sense of it. Um, I mean, that we, the 2017 election, the innovation was... Um, what they call multi-level regression and post-stratification, which was a technique which YouGov introduced, um, where they did. If you remember, uh, they continued to publish their traditional polls, but they did the work for the Times, which was the first to predict there was going to be a hung parliament. And everyone thought, by me. Um, But it was broadly right. Um, But that's using very large data sets and basically sort of deconstructing back down to the the building blocks and rebuilding each constituency in in sort of replica. but then that predicted, for example, that Canterbury was going to go Labour, um, which looked unthinkable. And in wow. an, an election where all of the top-line polls were saying actually the Tories are way ahead,
1: um, the sophisticated data stuff were saying they're probably not. So what's the relationship like between polling companies? Because you're simultaneously colleagues and rivals, aren't you? Is there a, is there a sense that you share best practice or do you, 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 you jealously guard your, your secrets?
2: No, it's a fairly fairly small and fairly friendly universe, and obviously there's there's, there's competition as well. Um, The world of polling sort of changed fundamentally in 1992 when the polls were wrong, and and, um, a series of methodological innovations were developed in order to respond to the reasons why the polls were wrong in 1992. But what they amounted to was stepping over a line beyond simple statistical sampling to a degree, into modelling um, the introduction of different weights to try to make sure the sample is representative, which involve a degree of educated guesswork. Mm. Um, and the, the sort of standard in, in the polling industry since then has been actually there isn't a provable, correct way to do this. The way that society changes, the way that the modes of communicating with people change mean that um, that's constantly fluid and something which worked the last election won't necessarily work at the next one. Um, so we all have to innovate, and what we hold ourselves to is a standard of transparency. So there is an organisation set up called the British Polling Council, which all the main polling companies are members of. And what that does is um, it has rules of transparency. So we have to publish uh, all of our data and what we've done to it. We have to have to say which weights we've applied to this data to try to make it a more representative sample. People do that in different ways. We we all publish it, and we're all ultimately answerable for who turns out to be right. But hopefully, that sort of pooling of knowledge, in a sense, and and, and testing by experimentation and by other people testing their theories, we end up with an innovative industry, and we do respond to those challenges.
1: What's your view on the idea that uh, opinion polls aren't just a snapshot of opinion, but they can help lead opinion? And there's been a discussion about this coming out of, of Trump's election and and uh, the EU referendum and other elections as well, that actually polls themselves influence the public to vote one way or the other.
2: I think it's hard to argue that that's wrong. I mean, yeah, there will certainly be people who will see a headline saying that, you know, Leave is going to win or Remain is going to win, who may think either I'm not going to bother to vote then there's no point or I'm definitely going to vote then. Yes. Um, I think it's quite hard to quantify. I'm not sure there's anything we can can do about it in the internet era. I mean, in France, they used to ban polls for two weeks before elections and that was held to be in contravention of Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights and now they have a voluntary ban for the last 24 hours. But um, actually, in the internet era, There's nothing you can do from stopping somebody in the world from doing a poll and putting it on the internet somewhere and the other argument about that is is that in democracy it's better to have a kind of a a symmetry than an asymmetry of information and if you do ban it or restrict it um, what you do is create a world in which the, the, the people who do know what's going on are banks and hedge funds yes uh, rather than ordinary people.
1: Well, that's a that's another. I mean, I was going to talk about the the Scotland referendum and the and the poll that um, that shook Westminster, uh, uh, not quite on the eve of the of the vote, but but certainly very close to it. But as you talk about banks and hedge funds, uh, this discussion about Nigel Farage and his behaviour on referendum mm-hmm. night to say to concede early, um, but and that is suggested perhaps could have caused movement in the markets, but that actually he'd seen polling that suggested. They were fine, is that the sort of thing that you you would worry about the implications of? Yeah, well
2: the and the, the Treasury select Committee is looking at this at this, and the um the financial conduct authority or one of those bodies is is looking at this um, I mean during the referendum, um very substantial sums of money were paid by financial institutions to run private polls and exit polls in order to get a march on on the result because that referendum was clearly a, a, an event which was going to move markets around the world and therefore the opportunity to make and and lose money I don't think we know what the effect was I don't think we know um, if m- money actually was then sort of bet on those things and, it, and so there's you know, the speculation that some people may have intentionally tried to manipulate markets I don't think there's any evidence to support that but, but it certainly in, in big electoral events like that which, which can move markets um, hedge funds and, and, and other financial sector institutions do spend a lot of money to try
1: to get information in order to anticipate what's going to happen If you were to be to use polls in a manipulative way what, what would be the best sort of thing to because I think about the 2014 referendum and I wonder about that yes no poll and how rogue it was or whether actually you, know, you could reflect on it Uh, and say, well, that was the perfect timing for it because it it woke people up to the fact that there was movement, that there was momentum on the yes side, but not perhaps quite enough to win, and it scared a lot of people who were undecided into thinking, actually, Scotland could be independent. On the eve of an election that was closely fought, would it be better, if you wanted to win it, would it be better to put out a poll that suggested you were going to lose, to scare your own supporters into definitely turning it out, or is it better to appear to be ahead?
2: I think, by and large, if you think about the way this is done in local campaigning, by and large, you want to send the message that it's really close. It's a two-horse race, as the Lib Dems would say. exactly, with all those dodgy graphs. Yeah, Labour can't win here. um, You want people to believe that it's worth them making the effort to go out and vote. So you need to... Your vote is going to matter. It's close. It needs to be the message. I'm not sure it matters much whether you're narrowly ahead or narrowly behind. On the the Scotland one... um, I mean, the thing is that the, the, the polls have been narrowing for a long time, and uh, you know, we always make the point to people: it's important to remember what blunt instruments polls are. Um, you know, the margin of error is plus or minus three percent, um, which is quite big in a in a, yeah. in, a two, you know, in a binary proposition. The, you know, and our feeling at the time, when I worked on that campaign as well, the, the, the No campaign, um, we've had so many polls saying it's sort of fifty one forty nine to us. The margin of error just means we're going to get one at some point which says it's 51 49 the other, the other way. Of that was bound to happen. It was, it was just because polls <coughs> scatter, scatter either side of a mean. So you'd expect some to scatter the other side of a very close result. Um, it definitely did galvanise the, the politicians. Um, I, don't, I, I think it was such an immersive experience for people of Scotland. Now, they've been living with this issue for. Twenty years, yes. they've been living with it, you know, day to day for months and months and months. You know, almost every day there's a debate of some kind, rather on mm. Scottish TV or radio. There were so many polls. I think they were very clear that the race was narrowing, and you know, the, the huge turnout that we saw in that referendum. I think I don't think that's because of that poll. I think that was going to happen anyway because the whole country was hugely engaged. I think the decision to uh, enfranchise sixteen and seventeen roles really helps. Um, It took it into the schools and kids were going home to their parents and talking about it. Um, I think it was a very positive thing. Um, And I'm not sure, actually, I think the the politician reaction to it, I don't think, had had much impact. Mm. Um, If you remember the three... The vow. The vow. And they cancelled PMQs and these are the three main parties came up to Scotland. But I think it it looked like, and this is very much what the focus group reaction to it was at the time, it looked like what it was, which was panic. Yes. Uh, And... It was the the optics were they, they they're taking a day trip from down there in London up here to Scotland yeah and they're basically they're desperate and they're going to say anything now <laughs> so we can't place any any credibility on that I think the thing which did um, which did flow probably from that poll which which crystallised um, the thing was business um, uh, very much as with the referendum it was a very important part of the argument for the no campaign in the Scottish referendum that. You know, we're not making this up if Scotland becomes an independent country there will be a lot of businesses that, that will and indeed have to relocate at least some mm. of their operations from, from Scotland and um, businesses were understandably quite reluctant to get drawn into that and I think that there were some businesses who had resisted and when they saw that poll thought we've got no choice uh, and so it, it, it was followed by a period of several days where the news was dominated by just a succession of Scottish businesses saying, "This isn't project fear. This is actually a thing," and I think that that, in my view, was more significant in shifting people than the poll itself were or the politician reaction.
1: I'm aware I've kept you for, for more than the the, the promised hour, but there was just one last thing I wanted you to talk about. It was something that I'm sure we've talked about before, but um, I, I watched a video from the um, the big. Tent Ideas Festival, the, um, the the Tory Glastonbury, and we've had Laura around on the show, and she she chaired a session that you that you uh, spoke in, where you talk about the the axis of of security and diversity, and use a fascinating phrase in it that the that the axis has has rotated. Yeah. So does that mean that people are still where they are, but they've got uh, effectively more or less affluent?
2: What it means is, I mean, if I to use Tony Blair's language, it yeah. means that the dividing line of politics is, is, at the moment, not the economics of left and right. It's, to use his language, open versus closed. Mm. And that, that basically the, um, the, the, con- the effects of, of globalisation, the disruptive effects on our economy, um, combined with um, economic migration and, uh, and rapid diversity of our country... Accompanied by social liberalism, have driven to the surface of people's consciousness identity politics, cultural issues, which have started to make some people vote in different ways than they did before. Um, So, um, people who traditionally would have uh, voted Tory for economic reasons starting to vote differently, um, and people who traditionally would have voted Labour for economic reasons. And we saw that very clearly in the referendum. When the center of gravity of the the leave vote was in the bit, bit of that it, bits of Britain that bits of Britain that are defined by being um, very non-diverse, very white, uh, and and uh, disproportionately rural and relatively poor, whereas the remain vote was concentrated in the bits of Britain that are both very diverse and relatively well off, um, and that's a rotation which we've also seen in America. Um, so traditionally, the center right. Centre of gravity would be the bits of a country that are both quite well-off and relatively non-metropolitan, more rural, non-diverse. And the centre of gravity of the centre-left would be the bits of the country that are much more diverse, more metropolitan, but also much less well-off. Uh, and those axes have rotated. So so Trump won. His centre of gravity was among the bits of America that are poor and non-diverse, the Democrats won among bits of America that are, are well-off and diverse. The same is true in France. The same is true in uh, in Italy and in Germany. The same. So people behaving differently because of cultural factors. So, for example, we know that you know, one of the strongest differentiators between uh, a Remain voter and a Leave voter is if you define your national identity as English rather than British. There's a, quite a strong probability that um, that you voted to leave. If you look at the the votes that Labour lost between 1997, the high watermark, and 2015, the next time there's a majority government non-Labour, the vast disproportionate number of those votes they lost were people who defined their national identity as English. The vast majority of them were people who went on to vote um, for Brexit. So, now that was happening in, in the background. What Brexit did was drive that to the surface but what it, what underpins that is that for not for everybody, but for most people on both sides, um, the EU referendum wasn't just a question of are we better off in or out of the European Union. It was a proxy for a whole, for a wider value set, yes. for a worldview, um, which is hence the Tony Blair open closed language. Uh, and that's why it's been so divisive and why people are, are sort of so dug in because it connects to your feelings about. A whole range of other things internationalism and immigration but also a range of social issues so you know most people who who voted for leave they're disproportionately likely to have um, more you know, small C conservative views on things like gay marriage and international development and crime you know they, they're, they're properly world views um, and at the moment those things are driving votes more than the traditional economics so in 2017 the Conservative vote became, compared with just two years earlier, significantly poorer, less well-educated, even less diverse, sort of rotating down, and the Labour vote moved the other way.
1: So in terms of, we don't know when the next election will be, fevered speculation in the last fortnight that we might be on the brink of one next year, but who knows. In terms of how it looks for both parties then, because it it seems from the outside that they're both keeping together quite... um, different coalitions of Leave and Remain voters and both trying to appeal to both. Um, How does either one of those parties break the deadlock and get a majority? Who are the people that the Tories need to win over and who are the people that Labour need to win over?
2: Well, firstly, it's going to be very hard for either of them to win a majority because we're a very deeply divided country. Mm. And and that rotation, that polarisation of values, which underpins it, means almost by definition... You can have to choose. You can't be the party of open and the party of closed. And uh, people can tell when you're faking it. And there is a trade-off. What the Tory Party has been doing over the last uh, several years is basically trading off more liberal middle-class voters in favour of gaining more um, socially conservative, more traditionally Labour voters. And that that has an effect in pulling the centre of gravity of what you believe. Uh, you know. Countries can, party, parties can, can to some extent, you know, they need to define the shape and the size of the coalition they want to build. Um, David Cameron, through a coalition which pulled in a lot of non-traditional Tories, a lot of former Liberal Democrats in 2015 that created a majority. In an election, remember when UKIP got 12.5% of the vote. You know, if you told us in 2012 um, that UKIP will get 12.5% of the vote in the next election, we would have assumed you'd have a, a Labour government. Yeah. Um, So he managed to win without absorbing the UKIP coalition. At the moment, the Conservative Party is is redrawing a different-shaped coalition that takes in a lot of UKIP voters but shuts out a lot of centre-ground voters, former Liberal Democrats, former Labour Party voters. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, because he's somebody who doesn't represent open values because he is at best ambivalent about the European Union, probably actually ab- opposed to it. Um, he believes, to some extent, in a closed economy because he, th- he thinks the you know, European Union and globalisation is a capitalist conspiracy. That means that he doesn't have an easy appeal to lots of people who are centre-left party in, in this divide ought to be able to appeal to. So there is a, there's a hole there, and there are lots of people who don't feel that any party represents them.
1: Is it fair to say of Corbyn that in some ways he's closed and that in some ways he's open or, or certainly could sell himself as open to younger, more idealistic people who would see his solidarity with sort of yeah. international yeah. workers and things like that as proof of openness?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and in 2017, one of the reasons Labour did so well is they got away with with trying to straddle it. Yeah. I think the more that people, people see of him, the more clear they are that, that, that actually he's not at all a supporter of... Remain, and and actually the the key aspects of that whole world view that he doesn't really share, but but he has enough of it to build some voters. I don't think he has enough of it to, to get over the line. If you also ask yourself the question, who is going to vote Labour next time, who didn't vote Labour last time, I think that's quite a hard question to answer, whereas it's quite clear that there are people who voted Labour last time who won't vote Labour next time. So I think if you had an election now, the most likely outcome would be another
1: messy young parliament. Andrew, Lord Cooper, it has been an honour to have you in here. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's flown by. I'm hopefully we can have a chat again at some point in the future. Anytime. time. Thank you. Well, Andrew Cooper, what a guy and what a guest. He was absolutely superb. You can follow him on Twitter, at Andrew Cooper underscore, underscore. I imagine there is a few Andrew Coopers on there, but he's the one with the blue tick who tweets about politics. If you are if struggling to find him, he was so good. And what I really, apart from all the brilliant insights he gave, he wears it so lightly. Like this is a guy who is in the House of Lords, has been director of strategy at Downing Street, and is just is so modest and approachable. Where you know my brief career in politics, you would often get people quite pumped up on themselves uh, who would. Feel very powerful with very little power and influence, and very little to justify that. Whereas this guy is exceptionally clever, um, really insightful, has served at the highest level, and is just, just so open. And um, which open in a perhaps a, a very different way to the um, open and closed discussion we had. Although indeed perhaps not. Uh, he was great, and I need to find an excuse to get him back uh, on in the future. So let me know what you thought. Email me at politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. If you can leave an iTunes review, it really helps other people find it. And after all, um, you know, I do make this with the intent that as many people as possible can have this as a resource. I left this really feeling like I'd just I remember it was like I remember when I first got into politics where you'd you'd read an article or you'd see an interview or you'd hear a speech by someone that, that really just reminded you about how brilliant politics can be and I felt so energised after. I still do a day later I still feel I'm still buzzing from it I almost feel like I've been to the cinema you know you feel like you've had a, a, a technical experience from someone he was so good Um Uh, But yes, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And as I said, uh, there are shows that you can buy tickets to. Two Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre uh, with live music from the wonderful MP4. That's on the 19th and 20th of December. Big Christmas parties that we have there. They're always raucous uh, and and great fun. And I'm doing two stand-up shows. Well, I'm doing one stand-up show twice if you see what I mean, at the South Bank Centre on the 1st and 5th of December and then I'm going on tour next year, all around the country um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head where I'm going, I know I'm definitely doing Newcastle, Edinburgh Glasgow, the Lowry in Salford um, and various other places, so look out for those Um slash live for all the latest live dates on there, um, and yes thank you so much for downloading do tell people about it, get in touch with Andrew Cooper, email me And I'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Ciao.